And we're going to start actually with a reading um, from Hebrews. We're going to read Hebrews 8 through 22. Excuse me, Hebrews 11, 8 through 22. And then we'll get started. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. So this is a New Testament passage that heavily references the part of Genesis that we're going to be working through today. And um, if you remember, we stopped with Isaac receiving a wife last week. So that would be in Genesis 23. Rebecca returns and becomes Isaac's wife when Isaac is 40 years old. Rebecca has a brother whose name is Laban, a character we're going to see here again. And this really gets us on from Abram, Abraham, who we started with, to Isaac. And Isaac is uh, a little different in the Genesis narrative in that his part in the story is a bit of a shorter one compared to Abraham and compared to Jacob and Joseph. Isaac's, Isaac's part in the story is a little smaller, but not in any way insignificant. So Isaac, the child of promise, the one legitimate heir of Abraham, is now grown... His wife is barren, 
This is a theme I want to touch on a little bit later. But Isaac prays to God for help. God answers his prayer, and Rebekah gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. By tracking the ages of people given the Old Testament, this would be somewhere around 2005 B.C. Isaac is now 60 years old, so he's well on in his life. Sorry? Well, put it this way, he's not a young dad. I think, I think it would be appropriate to say he's not a young dad. That is true. Um, if, we, if we allow for a longer lifespan, then you'd have to... Yeah. So proportionally, he may not have been as old as as it might be today. At the risk of offending, let's move on. Abraham next dies at 175 years of age and is buried in Canaan with Sarah. This, um, if we... We will get back to this a little bit, but... This, this becomes an important, an important place that we see mentioned here a couple times. Um, but we'll get to that in a bit here. Notice that they're, mer- that they're buried in the same place, and they're buried in Canaan. And remember where we said Canaan was? It's basically modern day, the Holy Land, Israel, right here. Okay, This is where Abraham has come. And if we remember back to last week, we start way over here in the land of Ur, when... Abram at the time was called. This is the Tigris and the Euphrates River. This is Mesopotamia. Here, this land in between the rivers. And he ends up in Hebron for a while. And he ends up in Canaan. This is Abram, remember? Then famine forces him to Egypt. God blesses him there through the Pharaoh. And now he's back here. Okay? Now we've moved on to his son Isaac. And Abram has died. And he's buried with his wife. God appears to Isaac and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant that will be established and continue through him. Isaac settles in Gerar, which is a part of Canaan, so we're still in Canaan. After briefly lying about Rebekah being his wife, remember I said that was going to be a family tradition? Just like Dad. He's worried about, um, he's worried about people knowing who his wife is. He makes a non-aggression pact with resident Philistines. A quick word about the Philistines, um, who will be bigger players in our story later. If you go back to Genesis chapter 10, you will see that the Philistines as a people are traceable back to Noah. We go from Noah to Noah's son Ham, H-A-M, Ham, to Kasluhim who is the father of the Philistines. So that is a point you may want to remember because, like I said, the Philistines will pop up again in our story with Israel and um, will be very um, strong antagonists in the story later. But that's just a word about where the Philistines come from. So this gets us to Jacob. And Jacob is the father of Israel's uh, 12 tribes, Properly speaking, 
Um, we're two generations in of God calling this people to himself. He's promised Abram, Abraham uh, numerous descendants. And we are two generations in, and there's only three legitimate sons that have happened. We have, we have Isaac, and then we have Jacob and Esau. Now, remember we talked about Ishmael through Hagar, the slave girl, okay, who becomes a nation, but God makes it clear that is not the nation of his chosen people. Um, and I think I mentioned last week that uh, the Arabic people happily claim their lineage, they claim it through um, Hagar and Ishmael, and they claim him as the legitimate son of Abraham. So that is important. You know, they also claim Abraham, but they claim Abraham and then a different lineage than Israel. So that's an important point to remember. So moving on, we have Jacob here. Jacob colludes with his mother to steal a blessing that was to be given to his eldest brother by Isaac. And this was after that Jacob had already stolen, well, somewhat stolen, um, the birthright from Esau himself for a bowl of soup. Seems odd. Seems like perhaps Esau undervalued that blessing. But again, we are starting to see the building of a nation. We're seeing the progression as we move through. So we move to Jacob and Esau. And, e and Jake, though Esau is the older son and should have had that blessing and that birthright, Jacob finds a way to steal it. The birthright for a bowl of soup, the blessing by, as you all know the story, um, basically impersonating his brother Esau and receiving from Isaac, whose eyes were bad, the blessing. Esau is furious at Jacob, and Jacob is forced to flee, to his, flee for his life. He flees back to the household of Laban. Remember I said Laban would pop up again. That's Jacob's mother's brother. That's where he ends up because Esau is trying to kill him because he stole his blessing. I have a, a question here I'd like to pose to you. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Um, we understand that Jacob stole this blessing that should have been Esau's. But it's interesting to me that it seems to be an irrevocable blessing. If my brother, if I had a brother today, in our modern day, if I had a brother and legally speaking, something should have been his, and I conspire to steal it. I don't think that my brother would be willing to just say, well, I'm very angry at you, but I'm not going to change that. I think that our attitude would be, well, that was ill-gotten gain. It's not legal. It's not right. What you had will be taken from you. We don't see that. Isaac, when Esau comes in and realizes that Jacob has stolen his blessing, Isaac doesn't say, oh, well, never mind, the blessing's off, you know, he stole it, it's not real. What Isaac basically said is, I can give you another lesser blessing, but I cannot take back the blessing I have given to your brother, even if it was for the wrong reason. And Esau himself doesn't question the legitimacy of the blessing. He's furious about it, 
Um, you know, Jacob has to flee to save himself. Why? Why does everyone accept the giving of this blessing, even if it was done so dishonestly? You ever think about that? Thoughts? Great. Pure speculation. Mm-hmm. Maybe they assumed that everything is God's. Everything that happens is God's will. Mm-hmm. And so, even though it was done incorrectly, mm-hmm. it, since God is control of everything, it was God's will. Mm-hmm. I think there's a very good chance that they considered it was God's will. My own thoughts lie somewhere along that lines, and somewhere along the lines of. Uh, they respected, you know, the sovereignty of God, but also I think that they did not have the same, just a different world, and it is possible that they did not believe in things being so easily undone, that blessings, covenants, and these sorts of things, once they're put into place, are not, you know, are not easily swept aside, that these words and these covenants and blessings have real meaning. Al? Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. He he did not he did not take back the first blessing. He just had I have a smaller blessing I can give you. Um but yeah, I just they people seem to take these sorts of things very seriously and even if it was not completely honest. Not only is it possible there's not as much back then legal recourse to mm-hmm. challenge that. Mm-hmm. This may not be an unprecedented <coughs> case. Mm-hmm. Yes, trickery was involved. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. there was maybe dishonesty, mm-hmm. but that may be something that just back then in the region and in the world that mm-hmm. was something that you know, they lived with and felt like. Yes, I agree. It may have been more common at the time. And, and you brought up the point of Jacob's treachery. Treachery is a theme that will follow Jacob through his life. Um, unfortunately, um, he, has, he will be both the, uh, the perpetrator and the receiver of treachery before his part of this story ends. So, because of the stolen blessing, because of his furious older brother, Jacob is forced to leave. So... We leave, he leaves Canaan and ends up in the household of Laban, remember his mother's brother, which is north, somewhere up here in this area, as best, as best I can find looking through several books. So he has to leave and flees to that house. And Jacob works for Laban for seven years in exchange for his daughter. But Laban deceives Jacob, Gives him his elder daughter Leah instead of Rachel, the daughter Jacob really wanted to. So now we see the treachery, but now Jacob is the one receiving it, right? He is deceived to get this uh, blessing. Now someone deceives him and basically cheats him out of seven years of work. So what to do? Well, sufficient to say he and Laban have some words about it. Um, Laban says, it's not our custom to give the, the youngest daughter first. Leah was the eldest daughter. He said, you can... 
work for me in another seven years and have the other daughter. And Jacob agrees to that. Now remember we talked about last week about Abram taking a slave girl to try and perpetuate the offspring that God had promised him. Remember, we have to understand how little they knew about God and how little written word they had. It's very offensive to our New Testament years that a man should take two wives, particularly a man who's going to be building block, third generation in this nation of Israel that God is building, that he has promised and he's in the process of building. But remember, most of what they knew about God, they're learning progressively. This is a progressive revelation. They're learning a little bit at a time, and they don't have all of Holy Scripture and, you know, and this written commandments that would, you know, the written commandments that might um, cause him to look a different way on it. So anyway, Jacob <clears throat> works another seven years, and Laban gives him Rachel as a second wife. Um, also, each of the um, daughters came <clears throat> with a handmaiden. So, and this goes on for a period of time. At first, Leah begins to bear Jacob's sons. And I have made a, a kind of a chart here in your notes about, because this is, the, this is the building of those 12 tribes we talked about. This is where we're really going to see things to start to multiply quickly. And I've just made a little chart there so you can see you can see that Leah by far gives Jacob most of his sons, but remember Leah wasn't the first wife that Jacob was interested in. Leah's handmaiden also gives Jacob two sons. And Rachel. Rachel will eventually give him two sons, but Rachel is barren. Again, and I'm going to turn back to Genesis here for just a second. Um, and read to you from Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. You can turn there if you care to, but you don't have to. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? All right. So this is a theme I think we have to touch on here a little bit, and that is the theme of the barren woman. It's popped up a lot. As a matter of fact, remember, we're three generations in on Israel. Sarai in Genesis 16, Rebekah in Genesis 25, and now Rachel have all been barren, unable to have children. This is a strange way to build a nation that will become so numerous. We're three generations in. Every single generation has had problems with having children at some point. And this motif consider, uh, continues through the Old Testament. We even see it in the New Testament. Elizabeth in uh, Luke. So I have some thoughts on this. Um, what can we learn about God from this theme that keeps popping up. The woman who wants to have children who's not having children. The promised people who aren't starting off as quickly as they might think. What can we learn about God? What can we learn about Israel and about ancient Israel from this? Jim. That he moves according to his time frame, but he always moves according to his promise, just not 
Yeah. Sovereignty of God. I agree. God moves in his own time and his own pace. Um, we, we, that passage that I read from Hebrews at the beginning talks about, you know, how old Abram was, you know, and how unlikely these things seem. And again, it's not the way you or I might build a nation, um, but God moves in his own way, God's sovereignty. Yes. So it teaches them that they are dependent upon Him. Yes, I agree. I think that it shows that the dependence on God, and critical point that you made, is that it drove them all to God in prayer. God, you made this promise. And if there's anything as human beings, like, again, respect the difference between our time and their time. In today's world... There are doctors, there are fertility clinics, there are other avenues to explore. We can do more than they could do in their time, but ultimately, we're talking about creation. The creation of a human being, it is done by God, and there are, you know, for for those who've had to to wait and wander, or for those who've struggled with it, um, it puts you very much in God's hands because you can do all these things, but it is God's, you know, making a person <laughs> is ultimately God's work. And, and I think that it just, it drives people to their knees and it shows them we're depending on God. Without your work here, this will go no further. Sorry, I saw Yeah, no, understanding where kids come from. Absolutely. I think that's another good example from earlier in Genesis. Yes, yes, sovereignty of God. Al. Oh. Sorry, right here, sir. Yes. 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 God showing his glory by working through the weak and, um, you know, the weak and the helpless. God, help us out. God, I'd, I'd like to have a child and I, I don't. So this it's just it's just something that pops up so often that I wanted to take a minute and have us kind of think about that and think about what God might be revealing about himself by allowing this to happen. Because, again, this is God's will. If God had decided 
to, I mean, Abraham, he could have given 20 sons, and all those sons could have had 20 sons, and never a problem. And by this time in the narrative, we could have a much bigger nation than we do now. But God's building it at his own time, in his own way, and um, teaching, as it were, the, you know, these people to depend on him even more. Um, so, yes. Yes, yes. And it's a good point. Esau is, is angry and um, far from, you know, he, he, is, he seeks out um, a wife from a different group of people um, as though to just, you know, stick it to dad just a little bit more and the whole family's angry about everything. But again, God is building this nation his way. Um, <clears throat> So, what happens next? Well, Jacob now has the, the two wives, the two handmaids, and he serves Laban for 20 years. Okay? And I'd like to go back to Genesis 30 and read just a little bit more here. I'm going to be skipping down. Um, to uh, 25. So Genesis 30:25. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, "Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wages and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service I have given you." And remember this was after Laban had deceived him out of an extra seven years of work to get the, uh, the wife that he really wanted. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, if I have, <clears throat> if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it to you. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. So, Jacob has made Laban pretty wealthy. Turns out Jacob is a good shepherd, apparently. God's blessing him. And Laban's flocks are increasing. And Jacob has a desire to return to Canaan. He wants to go, he wants to go home. Um, and, Laban, uh, and Laban basically says, well, you know, choose what your wages are going to be. And Jacob says, well, let me pass through the flocks and the... the the goats and the sheep that are speckled or mottled or basically don't have pure white wool, let me cut them aside. That'll be my wages. It's a fair return for the years of service I've given you. And Laban, remember the theme of treachery here, Laban says, sure. Laban has one of his other sons cut out all those animals and move them days away. So now Jacob has nothing. So the treachery continues, and um, as Jacob is watching 
Laban's flocks. He devises a way. I won't get into it too deeply here. He devises a way whereby the strongest of uh, Laban's flocks will produce, and they will produce speckled, mottled, not white offspring. Okay, so Laban cheats <laughs> Jacob. Jacob cheats Laban. There's all kinds of good things going on here. Um, but basically, at the end of this, because Jacob comes out ahead, there's a lot of treachery, but Jacob comes out ahead, and he ends up with a lot of flocks. And, how, and to just show you how bad it is, um, later Jacob will flee from Laban after they quarrel. Um, and I'm going to read to you. This, we're in Genesis 31 here. And I'm going to start with uh, verse 4. This is Jacob complaining about his treatment. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. Well, I think there's enough story here to uh, account for that. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Okay, we'll stop here for just a second because I think this is another point that we see running through the Genesis narrative that we have to get back to. Remember what was a key aspect in Abram being blessed monetarily with wealth? He's in Egypt, and he lies about his wife. Pharaoh steals his wife and gives Abram all kinds of wealth because of it, which Abram later leaves with. Okay, And Abram becomes a very wealthy man. Here we see Jacob and his father-in-law having this dishonest, treacherous relationship, and yet Jacob is going to leave with significant possessions. The theme here, God is blessing them as he said he would, but he's blessing them in unusual ways. Again, this is not how you or I would choose to build a nation, okay? We would have a lot of kids, no barrenness. They'd be reaping their own possessions and building up this large um, you know, possession of land and, and wealth. And here we see God, again, blessing someone in a very strange way. He's prospering despite the fact that his father-in-law is furious and trying to steal things from him. What does this teach us about God? That he's building this nation and that people are prospering in unusual ways. What does that show us about God? Why does that matter? Ethan. Yes. Yes. God is not limited by the, the sinfulness of man. God is still sovereign. Yes. God's grace is undeserved. Very good. These people don't deserve these blessings, okay? Jacob dealt treacherously with Laban. Abram lied about who his wife was. These are not, they're not receiving these blessings because they're worthy. They're receiving these blessings through God's grace. But God's not breaking His promise. He's faithfully, faithfully blessing them. And I think we will see again and again that God is faithful to these blessings despite, despite um, all these, despite it coming in unusual ways. Mm-hmm. To me, it also says the verse that says, 
<laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. His God's ways are above our ways, and um, you know that's part of the reason we have this history written for us, is so we can see these things. So anyway, Jacob and Laban obviously quarrel. He return. He, Jacob leaves with his family and all his possessions that he now has, um, and goes back to the land at God's instruction. There's a problem though. The problem is his brother. Esau. Jacob sends ahead to find out what the situation is there and finds out that Esau is coming to meet him with no less than 400 men. So so in his absence, Esau has become rather powerful as well, and he's coming to meet him. And not surprisingly, Jacob's terrified by this, and he sends gifts ahead to him. There's also an account where Jacob wrestles with God in the form of a man, and is given a blessing and a new name. From now on, it will be known as Israel. When Jacob reaches Canaan, this is in Genesis 33 now, he is greeted kindly and embraced by Esau. Not something he was expecting. It seems as though God is still protecting Jacob, because certainly Esau had the motive and had the manpower to do away with him, but it didn't work out that way. Isaac dies next at 180 years old and is buried by his sons. Interesting point there. It says sons. Who would the sons be? Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. They come together to bury their father. And he's buried at Hebron. Who else is buried at Hebron? It's where Sarah is buried in a cave that Abram bought from the Hittites. We read about that in Genesis 23, 19. Abram himself is later buried at Hebron in Genesis 25. So where is Hebron? Well, we think we know. It's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem today. You know where Jerusalem is? It's right there. About 20 miles south of that is Hebron. And you think, well, that must be an important place, and it is. Um, Hebron is a hugely important place. Has anyone here ever heard of the Tomb of the Patriarchs? Heard it referred to in such a way? Very important spot um, in today's world. Um, There's a large stone structure um, that was built there. Parts of the structure actually date all the way back to Herod the Great. That should sound familiar. New Testament, Herod the Great. Well, so, King Herod. Um, so parts of the structure that mark what they think is the site of these burials is, um, you know, 2,000 years old. It is probably the second holiest site to modern-day Israel after, you know, the, the, temp, um, the, the Wailing Wall the, on the Temple Mount. But it is a hugely important site. But remember, Israel are not the only ones that claim Abram. Okay, and that has caused a huge amount of problems today. Unfortunately, Hebron is a place that has seen. If you look up the tomb of the patriarchs, there is a list of massacres and atrocities and problems that have occurred there because the Arabic people and the, and <clears throat> the Israelites fight over it. Okay, but I just thought it was you guys would think it's interesting to know that you can look it up if you're curious. Again, the tomb of the patriarchs at Hebron. That's where Isaac has died, OK? 
Okay, and this will also become an important theme later about where people get buried. Um, it'll be important later when we get to Joseph. <clears throat> so, we talked about speaking of Joseph. That's who comes next in our story. Joseph was born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Joseph, who <clears throat> is, not, is his father's favorite son. Remember his father? We called him Isaac. We'll now refer to him as Ishmael. And this is a story you're all familiar with. In Genesis 37, Israel gives Joseph a multicolored robe. This, combined with some dreams that Joseph had of being worshipped by his brothers, caused his brothers to hate him. Not very surprising. Question. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we... um, his brothers plot to kill Joseph. His brother Reuben saves his life, but Joseph is thrown into a pit and then sold to Midianite traders. He goes to Egypt. He's a slave. So remember, <clears throat> Jacob comes up here. <coughs> he comes back with his two wives, two handmaids and 12 sons. So we're here. We're back in Canaan. And now Joseph is taken down here to Egypt. All right. Not Saudi Arabia. The Sinai Peninsula is not Saudi Arabia. Down across the Sinai Peninsula and into Egypt. And we'll also primarily deal with the northern region of Egypt, which is referred to in the Bible as Goshen. Okay? That's where eventually um, the Israelites will end up. But we'll get to that. <clears throat> in Egypt, Joseph is sold to Potiphar, captain of the guard, and an officer of Pharaoh. Joseph, and again here, we see people being blessed in unusual ways. It seems that from the time he gets to Egypt, Joseph is blessed with everything he touches. And yet it's not a smooth road. Joseph is framed by Potiphar's wife, or what we'd probably call sexual assault, and thrown into prison. But God blesses him. He becomes the keeper of the prison. Excuse me. The keeper of the prison eventually puts Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. Joseph has an ability to correctly interpret the dreams. He interprets dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker, who have also been thrown into prison. And later, Pharaoh's cupbearer mentions Joseph to Pharaoh himself, when Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. Joseph correctly interprets this dream for Pharaoh and predicts seven prosperous years to be followed by seven years of famine. Joseph also tells Pharaoh a plan how we can deal with this. We're going to store up grain for these seven years because we have seven good years to get ready for this. And Pharaoh is so impressed, he puts Joseph in charge of everything. He is second in command in Egypt at this point. This is huge. We're talking about a slave who becomes second in charge of Egypt. All of this right here. All this large and at the time very powerful nation. This is, I think we can trace the hand here of God's blessing. God blessing him in unusual ways, causing him to prosper in a way that, you know, in a place that we would never expect. Joseph, while he's there, marries the daughter of an Egyptian priest and has two sons. Here's my question to you. Is Joseph now an Egyptian? He marries the daughter of an Egyptian priest. 
He lives in Egypt now, and he's as high as you can climb in Egypt without being Pharaoh himself. Is Joseph Egyptian? Do you think he views himself as an Egyptian? No? No? Don't think so? I think that toward the end of Genesis, we'll get a a better answer here, but um, it's it's just an interesting point about how quickly and how fast he rises. What happens next? Joseph's family follows him. Famine again strikes, and once again, there's a problem with food up in Canaan. So Jacob, who is now Israel, sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain due to the severe famine. And again, this is a story you're familiar with. Joseph tests his, and toys with his brothers, but ultimately reveals himself to them. He treats them well. Um, Pharaoh is, is pleased by this revelation and tells Joseph to move his family to Egypt. And, I've, and it's kind of a, it's a curious thing when we consider how Israel will leave Egypt. But as far as how Israel arrived at Egypt, I'm going to skip ahead here to Genesis um, 47, 1 through 6, and read to you a little bit just so you can see how different Israel's arrival is from their departure from Egypt. So Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possessed, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen, which remember, Goshen, northern Egypt, up here. Okay? And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So far from... Israel didn't sneak into Egypt. They were welcomed by no one less than Pharaoh himself, who gave them not only pick of the best parts of the land, but gave them charge charge some of them charge over his own livestock because remember they're shepherds and i just think that's very interesting to just see how pharaoh throws because of how because of joseph and how joseph was such a blessing to egypt and was such a faithful servant of pharaoh that he throws open he throws open egypt for them he welcomes them so now Joseph and his brothers and his fathers are in Egypt and they settle. Jacob's descendants prosper and multiply greatly. And now we get to what is going to be the last big point I'd like to make. We have a few minutes left here. There are other, um, there are other small bits and pieces to the story, but just to track where we are. Now we're down here in Egypt. That What will become the 12 tribes are all there. They've settled in good land at the behest of the Pharaoh, and they are now 
prospering and multiplying greatly. Jacob blesses his sons, remember Jacob who's now Israel, and gives specific instruction that he not be buried in Egypt. He wants to be buried with his fathers in the land of Canaan. But that's a problem because he's down here. So what to do? Well, Joseph obtains special permission from Pharaoh himself and takes a large retinue all the way back up to Canaan to bury his father where he wanted to be buried. This is a big deal. I mean, there's all this stuff going on. It would have been very easy for Pharaoh to say no. Um, it, it's a large favor to ask for, but Joseph was so great, and again, God's favor present, that Israel, Jacob, Israel, is allowed to be buried again with his fathers in Canaan, which I think is very important. And then they, everyone else returns back to Egypt. And to finish up Genesis here, on his deathbed, Joseph also tells his brothers, God will visit Israel and bring them out of Egypt to the land promised to Abram. Now Joseph is making a prophecy. And Joseph makes the sons of Israel swear to take his bones with them when they leave Egypt. Why didn't Joseph want to be buried in Egypt? Egypt is what and where and how Joseph became the man. He became powerful in Egypt. He became famous in Egypt. He became the second in charge of Egypt. His father was buried in Canaan, fair enough. Why doesn't Joseph want to be buried in Egypt? Because I don't know, you guys, probably, you guys know this, if you're a big deal in Egypt, they know how to memorialize you. They build tombs that lasted thousands of years to honor important people there. Joseph's very important. He saved them from famine. He helped make them wealthy. Other people had to come there and sell everything they had to Egypt so they could buy grain. Why doesn't Joseph want to be buried in Egypt? True. I think that's very likely he was aware of the promise. I mean, he, he even makes, you know, even prophesies it. You know, he said what's going to happen. He's speaking, you know, about an exodus that will occur. And, and I think he doesn't want to be stuck down there. Um, I think that's completely right. I think it goes to ultimate identity. How do you view yourself? Okay, how did he view himself? And again, he was rich and immensely powerful in Egypt. He'd made it big in Egypt. Before he got to Egypt, all he was was the younger brother. But overriding all that, more important than all of his success, more important than the way the Egyptians would remember him, is that promise he believes in God, that he is part of a distinct people, that are going to a distinct place. Uh, and he was a faithful servant of Pharaoh, no doubt. He said, but when you guys leave here, you take me with you. And I just think that's, um, that goes to ultimate identity, 
Joseph dies at the age of 110. He's embalmed and placed in a coffin, embalming something else the Egyptians knew all about. Um, But he's placed in a coffin, and we will see that um, when the exodus occurs, because things will change rapidly over the next few hundred years for Egypt, and then we'll pick up the story for Israel in Egypt, and then we'll pick up the story in Exodus. But we see that all these promises will take place and that Joseph will go with uh, 